So we are going to um, be in a couple different places today. Um, we're going to be in a bunch of places, but a couple of that um, extended. One is in uh, Genesis 1, and then we're also going to be in Colossians 1. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you, God, for, for who you are and how you love us. And this morning, God, I'm trying to address a really big idea. God, as we, as we embark on this, I pray that you would give us open hearts and minds that are, that are open to your word and that you would give us eyes to see and minds that would understand and hearts that would love these glorious truths. God, I pray that we would see the work that you are doing and that we would see it as unified and that we would see it as beautiful and that we would be drawn to you because of it. This is not something that, that I can do with human words. This is something that, Holy Spirit, you have to do. So we pray that you would do it and that, God, you would receive all glory and that we would get the joy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are kicking off a, a new series um, this week, and it's called The Story, Bringing His Children Home. And essentially what our design is in this is we wanted to uh, look at uh, how do we just address the whole Old Testament? How do we make sure that we just have this, the, um, this clear understanding of what the whole Bible is about? Because we tend to get into these places where we study the Bible very specifically. And we get into, um, we'll, we'll do studies and we love to go verse by verse. And those are, that's incredibly important to do. And as you know, um, that's kind of, that's our typical MO here is that we love to go um, through a book of the Bible and just kind of take it um, as it as it comes and, and deal with the things that that God thought were important to deal with and so um, we love to do that but it's also very important um, to take a step back and just and just see the Bible as as one big story and to see the themes as they go as it goes as it goes through it um, one of the gifts that I got myself last uh, birthday or Christmas or I don't know and like as a dad I buy myself gifts that's how that works and um, and so I, I got myself a, a reader's Bible, and it's, um, it's a Bible that, that takes out all of the, the chapter numbers and the verses, verse numbers, and, and pretty much all of the headings. It has like a few really big overarching headings, um, and, so, and, and, and so it just removes all of that. And um, I'd heard people talk about it, and they said it was great, and I was a little, I was a little hesitant about it because I thought, ah, I, don't, I don't know if I like that, um, but I thought I would try it, and I have loved it. Because what it does is it removes, I didn't realize how often I would break down the Bible um, like almost like a mathematical equation where it's like, well, here's 124 and here's 125 and 126. And, and how often my, my mind would just break even after a chapter. And so it's been just an incredible way to just read God's Word in a fresh way to just, to just start reading and to not have any of those indicators, those visual indicators that I'm supposed to stop. And, um, and what's happened is I've, I've seen some connections and seen some things that I'm like, oh, I don't know, 
I don't know why I ever missed that. And then you realize, oh, that's at a chapter break, you know, and so I, I, I may not have connected those dots. And um, the beauty of that is uh, it, it just gives you the ability to just kind of read through it and, and catch the themes as you go. And those themes then start to build on one another, and you start to see connections maybe that you, you've missed before. And so um, I would encourage anybody to do that, whether you have a reader's Bible you know, that removes all that stuff or not, but just try to block out, um, sit down and just read. Um, one, an easy place to start is in the New Testament. Just read one of Paul's letters and just read it from beginning to end. Like, don't stop after a chapter. Just, just read the whole thing and, and try as best you can to block out those, those numbers that are around there. Um, and, and read it as the original readers would have, would have read it. And so we kind of wanted to do that, take that idea, that the value of that, and put it over the entire Old Testament. And say, okay, even as we lead up to Christmas, and we always talk about the incarnation of Jesus, and, and we every Sunday come together to worship Jesus, that, that, we would, that we would have a lens and have an understanding of how um, the Old Testament fits into that and, and, and how we should read the Old Testament. There's a lot of, of different ways that churches have um, dealt with the, the Old Testament um, over the years. Now, one, is, one is that they just ignore it. And that's, that's a really, I will tell you, that's a tempting thing to do at times. Like, if I'm going to preach through a book of the Bible, like, you know, why not preach through Romans or First or Thessalonians? Like, why, um, you know, why go back and spend the time to preach through Nehemiah and through Jonah and, and, and books like that? And so that's, that's tempting to just say, well, you know what? Yeah, we know it's important, but I'm still going to just leave it back there because who can really understand it? And besides, about every few chapters, something super uncomfortable happens, and then I have to try to explain that and, or, or ignore it, and just it's, it's confusing. But another way that people will read it um, is they'll just treat it like a separate Bible. And so they'll just go to it as the Old Testament, and they'll read it, and they're like, okay, well, we all understand this is the Old Testament, so we'll get what we can out of this but we're not really seeing any connection. And so that's what will lead a lot of times to us just kind of pulling out random stories, taking the best moral that we can from it, and just, and just moving on. And so we read David and Goliath, and we talk about, you know, and we, we just, we, um, we learn from David to be courageous and, and to trust in God, and, and we just take it and we say, okay, good, we got a good lesson out of that. Let's scrap the rest of that and, and move on to the next one. But I would say that neither one of those ways is, is the right way to read the Old Testament. I don't think it's honoring to God. And the reason it's not honoring to God is because it's missing two very important facts. One is, this is one Bible. So, in any full Bible you have, it is the full Bible, and it has the Old Testament and the New Testament all together. So it's not an accident that all these were grouped together. And the other reason it's, it's missing kind of the point is it's missing the central theme, the central point of the Old Testament, which is Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And we know this for, for many reasons, not the least of which is Jesus said it. And so that's kind of an important piece where Jesus, even after, after his resurrection, is talking to these men who were, who were lamenting about the, the death of Jesus. And Jesus says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus, in in revealing himself to people, said, hey, why are you surprised that, I, that, that, that this Messiah died? If you've been listening to the prophets, if you've been reading your Bible, which if you've been reading the Old Testament at all, you would not be surprised by any of this. And then he goes back and, and demonstrates through all the prophets and Moses and all of them. Wouldn't you have loved to be there in that moment? Like, I, I will tell you, I, I can't imagine, like, I would love, like, in, in eternity... If, if they do like a heaven conference, like a mini conference, and one of the breakout sessions is Jesus walking through the Old Testament, pointing to himself, I'm there, right? I mean, what, what better thing than to hear Jesus say, hey, let me tell you, all of the Old Testament was about me, let me show you. And they got to hear it. No wonder later they said, did our hearts not burn within us? I would think so. So the Old Testament is pointing toward the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then the rest of the New Testament is is pointing back to it. And also then pointing forward to eternity when Jesus returns. So whether it's foreshadowing the incarnation of Jesus, or pointing back to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, or pointing to the second coming of Jesus, there's a common theme there. It's Jesus. And we need to read the Old Testament with that in mind. Ephesians 1 says it this way. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The plan for all time and for the fullness of time was to unite all things in Christ. It is one story. This is a story of God creating a kingdom. And as we go through this series, we will see these themes that God created a kingdom. It's a story of how that kingdom was lost. It's a story of how that, the, the, the new kingdom, the new establishment of that kingdom was foretold over generations and generations and generations. It's a story of how that new kingdom came to earth and was near And it's a story of how that new kingdom being established through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus will be fully formed in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. It is a story about this God who in his kindness and in the love that that he was sharing even in himself fully that he desired to share it with his creation. 
And in our part of the story, it's, 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 a, part, it's a story of a people who are divided between these kingdoms and whose hearts lead in rebellion against the true king, but a king who is relentless in the pursuit of his children and pulling them back to himself. So today we're going we're gonna to start this series with creation. Figure it makes sense to start in the beginning. And the question we have to ask is, how does creation speak to Jesus? How is it about Jesus and how does it fit in with the one big story? So if you have your Bibles, you can open it to Genesis 1. That is the very first before I knew the Bible well, I was always super excited when they would tell me to open my Bible to Genesis. Because it's at the beginning. It's not hard to flip through and find that. I just want to read a little bit of this. Genesis 1.1, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Okay, I want to pause there. Just a few things I want to point out in in this this morning because I could go into all kinds of detail about all kinds of things but I want to focus on the main things and the most important things and the first most important thing that we see from this story is that in the beginning God created 
I mean, this, this means the beginning of this story, by the way. I mean, it's not the beginning of God. And that would just blow our minds if we try to consider that God is outside of time and that God didn't start right at the beginning of this. God has always been. But in the beginning of our story, he created the heavens and the earth. And the question often is, well, why did he create the heavens and the earth? What's the point of that? And, and he didn't create the heavens and the earth because he needed anything. He wasn't lonely I remember hearing that one time when I was younger, that like, well, God, God was lonely. He wanted someone to share his creation with, so he created us. It's not true. It's not true. God, God created it out, out of his fullness. He was fully content, fully fulfilled. His, the, that's part of the beauty of the Trinity is love and everything else that we could ever imagine wanting to experience. God had in fullness. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't lacking. He, he desired to share his glory. So he shared it with us. And as we read this account of creation, the things that, that jump out constantly is every, every day starts with, and God said, and then it was so. So God said, let there be light, and there was light. And, and it's just this incredible idea that whatever God spoke into existence came into existence, and it was good. Now, I would submit to you, sitting here this morning, that there are only two logical reactions to what I just read in Genesis 1. Either... That is completely ridiculous. Or that is unthinkably amazing. I, like, think about this. There, what we just read and what we have talked about, the, the idea that this God created all this, and think about creation. You, you can only react to that either with like a hand wave and like, that's ridiculous, that's a myth. That's why Christians are insane, and that's why we'd be better off without Christianity, without religion. That's a logical response to that. And if you don't respond that way, then the only other logical response is utter amazement. The one response that makes no sense whatsoever is, That makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, you think about what God has created. Think about the vastness of what he has created and, and how it's articulated in the Bible. It says he just spoke light into being and there are stars. Stars! Like, do you understand like, how amazing this is? I mean, think about this. Science is not really my thing, okay? I, I hated science, but, but one thing that's always fascinated me is how huge creation is. I mean, when you think about that God spoke stars into existence and just flicked them out there like scattering seed in a garden. Just, no, oh, over there. I mean, when you think about how big and how how amazingly huge that expanse is. I mean, we measured it so big that we have to measure it in terms of light years. Which, if you don't know, is the distance it takes, the distance measured by um, if you travel the speed of light for a year. 
And just to put that into perspective, because I'm just like not a science guy, so I need it broken down really simply for me. But the speed of light, if you're traveling the speed of light, you could travel around the equator 7.5 times, seven and a half times in one second if you're traveling the speed of light. Seven and a half times in a second around the equator. If you're going that fast, you would get to the moon in 1.3 seconds. 1.3 seconds! That's like a million and a half times in one of my sermons. Right? I mean, you've got a lot of distance you could travel in that time. You would get to the sun in 8.3 minutes. Like 8 minutes and 20 seconds, about. You would get to the sun. And the closest star that God just said, hey, let's have some stars. Traveling at the speed of light, nearly four and a half years. Just eight and, like not even eight and a half minutes to get to the sun, four and a half years to get to the next closest star. And the Andromeda galaxy, the furthest thing that we can see with the unaided eye, I mean, we, we can, you can see it, 2.5 million years traveling at the speed of light. And we can see it. That should produce just some kind of wonder in every human being. But the idea that God did that is either ridiculous or it is awe-inspiring. And what's amazing is that we, we think about the bigness and the vastness of his creation, but, but how small it is also. Like how he designed down to the parts of parts of cells. We cannot go, not only can we not imagine what is beyond Andromeda and anywhere else, like we can't, we just don't know where, how, where it ends. We also don't know where it ends on the other end of creation. I, I read this in a science journal and I was going to paraphrase it, but I didn't understand it. So I'm just going to quote it and I'm hoping somebody here understands it. It means something. Particle physicists, didn't know that was a thing, particle physicists try to understand the nature of nature at the smallest scales possible. Today, we know that atoms do not represent the smallest unit of matter. Particles called quarks and leptons seem to be fundamental building blocks. Sound like a fantasy novel? Quarks and leptons, leptons seem to be this fundamental building blocks, but perhaps there is something even smaller. Physicists are still far from understanding why a proton has about 2,000 times more mass than an electron. What's in there? They don't know. And on top of it all, this is, this is still quoting this article, on top of it all, scientists suspect a whole new class of undiscovered supersymmetric particles to complete the subatomic family. I don't know what that means. But it's kind of amazing, right? Like the smartest people that we have have been studying and discovering for years and years and years, and they're saying 
they still are far from understanding. Why does a proton have 2,000 times the mass of an electron? There is no telling how deep this rabbit hole goes. We will be discovering for eternity how deep that rabbit hole goes. And we will never reach the end of it. This is the crazy thing about this. Think about this. In eternity, in eternity, we will still have people trying to discover this. And God just saying, yep, still goes further. Like for all eternity. Like this is unreal that the God who effortlessly just flicked a galaxy two and a half million light years away from the earth is the same God who knows what makes up a quark. This is either ridiculous or amazing. And for those who see it as amazing, this is the God you call Father. This is the God you pray to, call out to. He's also the God that in our petulance we demand answers from and complain to and shake our fist at and disobey because we think we know better than the one who knows what makes up a quark. See, when you call on this God, his sovereignty is backed up by his vastness. If God can create the heavens and the earth with words, how much more surely can he handle your situation right now? He doesn't get tired. He doesn't lose interest. He doesn't get bored. And not just the vastness and his power and his might, but the the smallness and the details tell us something very important. Every intricate detail is planned out, which means not only does he know where all those stars end, he also knows every molecule and every hair on your head. He knows every emotion in your heart before your brain even has a chance to process it. Be in awe this God. It says that he created all of this and he called it good. And you keep hearing that. God saw that it was good, but the question, just to kind of move along, the question is what made it good? Why was it good? Was it good because he just like made a tree? He's like, that's a good tree. Well, the question is, well, what makes anything we make good? How do you define, how do we define good? If you make something, I just saw um, on, uh, I, I got shared a picture, someone shared a picture with me of this beautiful dining room table that someone in our church had made. It was gorgeous. And you look at that and you say, well, like how do you determine that it's good? Like that's a good table. Well, a couple of things. It depends on, it depends on what the goal and the purpose of it is. All right, if I made a table, nothing would stay on it. Okay, you'd put things on it and it would just all roll off the side of the table. That's not a good table. All right? A table that breaks down after a week of use is not a good table. But a table that is this beautiful thing that, that lasts and, and serves its purpose, that's good. So even we know that the definition of good is, is in, does it fulfill the purpose that, that the expectations of the one who created it? It's all about those expectations. What is it designed to do? And the same thing is true with God and his creation. 
What made creation good was that it was in harmony with God and his purposes. Creation was good because God declared that it was good because it was in line with him. It existed to glorify God. It existed to demonstrate the, the vastness and the beauty and the majesty of God. And it did it, and it was good. This is incredibly important. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made... It's for, we, we were created for God's glory, and so that's what makes it good, is, is the, the, the extent to which we fulfill that purpose, and creation was fulfilling that. I love how um, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I always promote as my favorite children's Bible, and the author in that said, talking about the creation of mankind, said they were lovely because he loved them. It's a great way of putting that. Like, we need to understand this. this is important. This is an important point. Creation is not good in and of itself. Creation is not good apart from God. This, this stretches our thinking a little bit, but it's really important to understand. God didn't create something that was good. He created something. The goodness is defined by its relationship to him because he is good. Okay, not, not like we're good or a child is good. God doesn't have good attributes. God is the definition of good. And so by definition, anything attached to him, anything in harmony with him is good, and anything apart from him is not. This is why Jesus said when, when the rich young ruler came to him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit life? What does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So God's creation is good, which is why, it, it, to the extent that it's in harmony with him, which is why um, we, we are to care for it. We are to appreciate God's creation. We're just not to worship it. And Paul addresses that in Romans 1, where he talks about how even nature cries out and, and, and gives evidence of this incredible God. And then it says they, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So we are stewards of creation, not worshipers of creation. And this has big implications for the way we live. One is we should care about God's creation. We should care about everything that God created. It has a value inherently because it was created by God. Because his fingerprints are all over it. Because, because it belongs to him. And so that's why we care about the environment. We don't care about the environment because a political party tells us we should or we shouldn't. We care about the environment because it's not owned by a political party. It's owned by God. But we're not worshipers of it. It's also where we get the idea that we value all life as created in the image of God. Imago Dei comes from Genesis 1, the part of the verse that we memorize when God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish, the sea, and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what we learn from this is that that every human life has value inherently because they are created in the image of God. They are image bearers. Whether they realize it or not, they are image bearers of our God. Which is why we love people regardless of what they do, but because of who they made, who they were made by. So that's why we, you love your neighbor. Jesus calls you to love your neighbor, not because your neighbor is kind, not because your neighbor is a good person or, or does nice things for you. You love your neighbor because your neighbor was created in the image of God. Think about this. this. This is the uniqueness of Christianity, which is why Christianity, Jesus is the one who tells us to love our enemies. Well, how could you possibly be asked or expected to love your enemies? Because we don't love people based on what they do. We love them based on who created them. And so that's why we care. That's why Christians, since the beginning of time, have cared for the weak and cared for the poor. They've given voice to the voiceless because that's what our Father does. And so we care that people go hungry. We feel responsibility to do something about it. We care that, that people have medical care and that they have clean water. We care that children have homes And that those in prison have visitors. We care about that. We care for refugees. We care for people who are in our country illegally. We care about racism. Not because any of these parties have earned it, or not because of what they do for us or don't do for us, but because they are image bearers of our God. And we can disagree on how to go about that. Those are legitimate conversations to have, but not that we are about that. So God created this incredible world, and he saw that it was good, and he gave work to be done. And Adam and Eve were given this work when God told them to be fruitful and multiply and and to have dominion over the earth and to subdue it. And he gave them food, and he gave them animals to care for. He gave them work. And here's what's incredible about this. That this God who created everything, well, why did he create it? He created everything to share in his glory. And so what is he doing when he gives Adam and Eve work? He's giving them an opportunity to share in his glory and to share in his work. We've used this illustration many times. He's like a a father who lets his child come alongside and, and participate in his work because it increases our joy. I'm not going to go, we've talked about this recently, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. But to say that work is part of God's good creation. And again, why do we say it's good? Well, it's in its relationship to God. So work comes from God, not your boss. That's why we work. That's why Colossians 3 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Why? Because work came from Him. He invented it. 
Your work, how you go about it matters. And, and so this is, a good, this is a good plug for Archer's workshop at, a, at our little mini conference. If you look at your job and you say, I don't have any idea how I can work this job to glorify God, then I would encourage you to go to that workshop. So everything looks great. God created everything good. He created man and woman. Everything in, in harmony. He gives us jobs. So then why doesn't it feel that way? I mean, sometimes God's creation seems harmonious, right? I mean, you, you look at God's creation and you have a sunset or a quiet morning on the lake or a beautiful snowfall. And then other times there are hurricanes and flooding and tornadoes. And sometimes people are amazing. Sometimes like, you see those stories about people doing incredibly heroic things. Kind things for other people, generous things for other people, unselfish things for other people. And then the next story is someone doing something horrifyingly evil to someone else. Why? Well, in God's kingdom, there is this one law. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I'm not going to steal Robbie's thunder. He's going to talk about the fall next week. But here's the big point. That one rule wasn't really about fruit. And it wasn't about the knowledge of good and evil either. It was about Adam and Eve finding their everything in their unity with God. It was them trusting and obeying that their, what made them good was their harmony with God, their trust in God, their love in God, their they're all satisfying worth and joy in God. But they thought it was about them. And if you want a beautiful picture, and when I say beautiful, I mean an awful picture of the fall, it is simply that. We forget who the story is about, and we think it's about us. So all of creation is knocked out of step and out of harmony with God. And the whole Old Testament is a story of God foreshadowing and proclaiming when he was going to bring everything back in harmony with himself. And so we see these parallels because this is all about Jesus the creation is about Jesus. It's about Jesus for a million reasons, but one of the first and most obvious is that Jesus was with God in the beginning. We see that in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Notice the parallels. It's almost like the author of the New Testament. It's almost like John said, I, I think we need to draw a parallel here. I want everybody to know this is the same story. This is not a new religion, a new thing, a new thought. It is the continuation and the consummation of all things. Like it's all coming through this. And so he starts his gospel the same way Genesis starts. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So what we see here is that Jesus was with God the Father in the beginning. The Trinity has always been there. And so we have many break-off cults that will say, oh, Jesus didn't show up on the scene until thousands of years later. 
or that Jesus was created by God the Father. It's not true. He was with him in the beginning. Not one thing was made without him. Colossians 1, which is the other place that I encourage you to turn to, is starting in verse 16. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Did you see what's happening? All of creation was fractured and out of harmony with God. And it was all pointing to when Jesus, all things would be brought under him. And he would make peace between us and God by the blood of the cross. The original creation points to the new creation. The same God who flicked those stars 2.5 million light years away became flesh and dwelt among us. It is utterly amazing or it is ridiculous. And in that creation, that foreshadowing of God saying, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm doing a new work. This is going to happen. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation, right? So it's the same language. He keeps pointing back and saying, Okay, God created us. We were designed to bring him glory and proclaim his glory and and to sing and to live and to walk with him and and to live in harmony with him. That's what we were created. But sin came in and fractured that harmony. And now Christ reconciles all of us back to him. And anyone who is in him is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So the creation is new, right? Our goodness is then restored. Okay, remember, why is it good? Why was something good in the creation? It was good based on its relationship with God. And when sin enters, what happens? Our relationship is broken. And we are by nature children of wrath. But in Christ, our goodness and our righteousness is restored because we are brought back in relationship with him, making peace by the blood of his cross. Continuing Colossians 1.21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So, again, righteousness, our goodness, and creation, it wasn't based on them in of themselves. It was their relationship with God. In the new creation, it's not based on what we do, but on what Jesus has done for us. We are given in his righteousness. 
And we talked about this at the baptism service, that, that it doesn't matter on judgment day, the only question that will be asked of you is, are you united with Christ? That's it. They will not give you a theology test. Theology is incredibly important. I've done it in my life to understanding it and explaining it, but, but it will not get you into heaven. Believing the right things will not get you into heaven. Doing the right things will not get you into heaven. The only thing that makes you right with God and in harmony with God is to be attached to his son, to be unified with Christ, to be crucified with Christ so that the life that you live is no longer yours, but it's his. It's not living your life in a Christian way. It's not taking your world and making it look Christian. It's dying to your world and taking on the life of Christ. So when people come to me for counseling, I'm not looking to see how many good things or bad things they've done. I'm not determining if they're a good person and, or how to make them a better person. That's not my goal. I'm looking for one thing. Are you united with Christ? Are you walking with Christ? Are you attached to him? And that's my unashamed goal every time is to point you to Jesus and say, walk with him. Attach yourself to him. That's how the creation is restored. Jesus did the work that was, he was sent to do. He said, my father is working until now and I am working. And so where Adam and Eve failed in their job, Jesus succeeded and says in John 19, it is finished. On the cross, it is finished. His work is done. Creation, brokenness, new creation, healing. And God's work through Adam and Eve as he commissions people to display his glory. Adam was commissioned to work and subdue creation for God's glory. Noah was commissioned to be fruitful and multiply for God's glory. Moses was commissioned to lead people, God's people out of Egypt for God's glory. Solomon was commissioned to build the temple for God's glory. Nehemiah was commissioned to build the city walls for God's glory. The prophets were commissioned to proclaim the word of God for God's glory. And even Jesus was commissioned to reconcile all things back to God for God's glory. It's been the same mission as the beginning to fill the earth with worshipers of God, to fill the earth with God's glory. Not because God has an ego, but because that is where we find joy to fulfill the purpose that we were created with. He's letting us share in his perfect holiness forever. So the work we are to be about is the work we are commissioned to do by God. And what is that? Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I can already hear the complaints. Like, seriously, Jay? Are you going to quote the Great Commission every sermon? Yes. 100% always. Why? Because it's the Great Commission. We've been given a work to do by God our Father. Not by the church, not by pastors, by God our Father. This is what Colossians goes on, talks about being ambassadors for Christ. Like well, you, We have this ministry of reconciliation, so we go and we tell people, be reconciled to God. This is why we say we don't need more programs or events. We need more people who will spend time worshiping God in every area of their life and loving their neighbor and proclaiming the goodness of God's kingdom. 
This is either the most ridiculous thing you have heard in a long time, or it is the most amazing. You're created by God through Jesus Christ. By the same God who spoke the Son into existence, and the same God who numbered the hairs on your head, you are created in the image of God. But that image is broken. We are broken image bearers. But in Christ, in Christ alone, you can be formed into the image you were always created to be. You can be a new creation. You can be born again. You can have the righteousness of Christ. And then you are sent. God didn't save you just for yourself. You have been sent to proclaim the incredible news of this kingdom. So my hope is that after this morning, you will look at creation, and when you're out there and you're enjoying it and you see something beautiful, that it would stir your heart to worship the creator. Don't worship the creation. It's not worth it. Worship the one who created it. Be stirred by him. Be in awe. Confront yourself whenever you feel apathetic about it and say, that's not a rational response. Apathy is not rational. This is either ridiculous or it is amazing. Be in awe of that and be sent. And go and proclaim it to the entire world. Let's pray. Father God, you are, you are amazing and we, we fall short fall short in our understanding of who you are and what you have done, and we minimize the most incredible things. They become boring to us. God, forgive us. But God, we know because it's so obvious to us that it's not, it's not boring. It's not actually boring. We just, we're just broken image bearers. We have broken eyes. We have broken hearts. We have broken minds. You are the only one that can restore us. God, help us to see the wonder of creation and help it to stir our hearts with affections and awe and amazement to you and to what you have done. And help us be so filled with your glory that we would reflect it and shine it to all of those around us. In Jesus' name.